If you'd like to spend some time with real people with a real heart for God, we welcome you to visit us at Harvest Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Our Sunday morning services are held at 1030, and our Family Night Fellowship takes place on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Come experience God's awesome, life-changing power as we worship in His presence, fellowship with one another, commit to discipleship, and share God's love through evangelism. For more information or directions, visit HarvestNova.com. That's HarvestNova.com. Today I want to minister to you from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse number 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says, One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. The title of my message today is Extreme Faith. Extreme Faith. It was the first day of basketball practice at Wingate High School in Brooklyn, New York. The coach handed a ball to each player. Boys, he said, I want you to practice shooting from spots you expect to be in in the game. One of the boys who was pretty much there as a substitute only for the star players, in fact, he was uh, player number 12. He was the last player to ever go in a game. He immediately got his ball, sat down on the bench, and began to shoot the ball toward the basket from there. You might say he didn't expect to play much. Uh, You know, the coach said, shoot from where you expect to be, so he shot from the bench. I suppose he was just trying to get a laugh from his teammates, Uh, but there are some people who sit on the bench because that's where they've become used to being. They never strive to do much more than that because they don't believe in themselves enough to put in the extra effort to change their status. And because of that, they're always going to be on the bench. Well, there are people who live their Christian lives like that player on the bench. As far as their faith goes, they are the proverbial bench sitters. They are the type of people who don't expect much out of God, and that's what they get. God tells us in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In other words, God is looking for people who aren't satisfied being bench sitters. He's looking for people who not only believe that he exists, but who believe that he 
uh, will reward those who earnestly seek him. God is looking for people with an extreme faith. A faith that won't accept the idea that they can just get by as Christians. A faith that rejects the idea that God is somewhere out there and somehow doesn't care. A faith that exerts itself because this person believes God will hear their petition. God is looking for people with extreme faith. He's looking for people who will say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. He's looking for people like Abraham who are, quote, fully persuaded that God has power to do what he has promised, as it says in Romans 4.21. He's looking for people who, like Paul, believe that God is, quote, able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. From Ephesians 3.20. He's looking for people with extreme faith. He's looking for people like the men in our story today. And so, this morning, for the next few minutes, I want to answer the question... What are the characteristics of people with extreme faith in God? What are the characteristics of people with extreme faith in God? Characteristic number one is this. They are desperate to receive something from Jesus. People with extreme faith in God are desperate to receive something from Jesus. From the way this man on this pallet, this paralyzed man, and his friends behave, you can feel the sense of urgency, can't you? You can almost sense the desperation. They've got to get to Jesus. They can't risk Jesus getting away out of town uh, before their friends had a chance to be touched by Jesus and healed. And here they finally caught up with Jesus, and they can't get through the crowd. They try to get through the door of this home, this, this place where Jesus was ministering. The crowd was too heavy. They can't get through. And so they sit down together, and they think, what, what can we do? Maybe we can drop him down from the roof. That, talk about thinking outside the box. <laughs> and so uh, they go up to the roof, and you have to realize this is a bold move. What they're contemplating is a bold move on their part. Not only are they about to destroy the roof of someone else's home and uh, disrupt a session being taught by Jesus, imagine if the ceiling started crumbling above us and right now while I'm speaking. That's, that's the equivalent of what they were doing. And uh, they are barging into a meeting of some very important people. Verse 17 tells us there are religious leaders here from all over Galilee and even from as far off as Judea and Jerusalem. What they were contemplating would have serious ramifications. And it wouldn't be easy, nor would it be neat. It would actually be quite a hassle. Scholars tell us that homes that day had a unique flat roof made of wooden beams that uh, rested on the walls of the building. These beams were placed about three to four feet apart, and they were covered with thick branches, brush, reeds, Mud, grass, clay, you name it. The resulting layers on top of the beams would measure from four to six uh, inches thick. And so you get the idea from this text also that there may have been some sort of tile uh, on the top of the roof to divert the water away. And so can you imagine the racket that they started to make as they started tearing away at this roof? 
and the debris starts raining down. You can just see people scattering, you know, to get out of the way of the falling debris. And then there's a, the light starts to filter through, and there's a hole big enough to lower this man down on a pallet uh, using some ropes. And he comes down, and he's there on the floor in front of Jesus. You could say they were desperate, couldn't you? They were desperate to get to Jesus. You know, as strange as it may sound, desperation is really a good thing in our spiritual lives. Desperation causes us to be open to radical solutions, as these men were willing to risk uh, in order to find what we're looking for. Desperate ones seek with an all-consuming intensity, for they know their life depends on it. Think of the cancer patient who travels to a foreign country looking for a cure that he can't find in his own country. Uh, in the same way, spiritual seekers embark on a quest which cannot be found uh, by thinking inside the box. They were desperate. What we lack in many cases is desperation. This morning, church, getting to Jesus shouldn't be a preference. It shouldn't be a, if, a, if it's convenient type of thing, should it? I believe uh, getting to Jesus should be a desperation in our lives. How about you? Do you have an extreme faith today? Are you desperate to receive something from Jesus? Because if we're not, if we're not desperate to receive anything from Jesus, that's what we'll receive, nothing. Did you know that we play a part in what we receive? It has to do with our desperation. Are we content to give just a cursory try? Maybe offer up one week prayer. Saying, well, I prayed about it. Just kind of leave it at that. There's something we don't hear much about these days. Uh, but the Bible talks about travailing in prayer. You ever hear that? that you ever hear that phrase? To travail is to agonize, to, to invest all of our energy, to pray passionately, to pray like we're desperate. And when we're desperate to receive something from Jesus, we're going to do more than just offer one quick cursory prayer. Jesus, if you can find the time, if you can fit it in the schedule, God, it would be really great if you did this. Amen. <laughs> No, our desire to get to Jesus has to be much more desperate than that. Those with extreme faith are desperate to receive something from Jesus. How about you today? Are you desperate? Do you have to get to Jesus? Do you have to? Is there something you need that only he can provide? God is looking for people with extreme faith who are desperate to receive something from Jesus. What's the second characteristic of people who are, uh, have an extreme faith? Not only are they desperate to receive something from Jesus, but secondly, they receive what they need most from Jesus. Jesus uh, looks up here in verses 20 through 25. He looks up to see the anxious faces peering down through the hole in the ceiling. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, this, this had to be incredible. He looks down on the man 
uh, in the, on the pallet on the floor in front of him, perhaps embarrassed to some degree. And the whole room waits expectantly. What will Jesus do? What will he say? Uh, will he heal this man? Will he become angry that his uh, time has become interrupted? And then Jesus does the most unexpected thing. He turns to this obviously lame man on this pallet who's just been lowered down from the ceiling. He turns to him and says, your sins are forgiven. That is not what he nor his friends nor anyone in the room expected Jesus to say. And you could sense the mood in the room begin to change. He'd come to be healed, not forgiven. Not that forgiveness isn't a good thing, but it just wasn't why he'd come. And then the crowd is, you know, mulling this over. And the religious leaders, I mentioned the religious leaders are there. And the scripture says they're thinking to themselves, who is this man who thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Well, their theology was correct as far as it went, because it is true that only God can forgive sins. Their problem was they didn't realize that God was there in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And he had the authority to forgive him of his sins. Jesus waits for a few minutes, then he addresses them. Uh, it says in verses 22 to 24, he knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take up your mat and go home. Now, I want you to catch this. I don't believe there's anywhere else in the Gospels where Jesus did a miracle to prove who he was. As a matter of fact, in his disputes with the religious leaders of the day throughout the Gospels, they would try and bait him. They would say to him, do a miracle, do something spectacular, prove to us who you are, and he wouldn't take the bait. But here in this one passage, after he had forgiven the man's sins, he said, so that you can know uh, that I have the power to forgive sins, he says to the paralyzed man, rise up, take up your bed, and go home, you're healed. And the scripture says that uh, as that, uh, a warmth went through this man's body, he, he, he felt the ability to get up, and he got up off his mat, and he started uh, prancing around. Can you imagine? And praising the Lord, and the people around there started uh, praising the Lord as they caught this man's excitement. Now, a, a question might arise. Why did Jesus first, before he healed him, say your sins are forgiven? It's because Jesus always gives us what we need. Not always what we want, nor what we want to hear. Part of the reason Jesus said uh, this is, is that it's what the theologians wanted to hear. They wanted to know what his message was. And his message was that he had come to save the lost. As John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' purpose in coming to the world was to bring forgiveness, and he demonstrated that in the life of this man. I found this scientific fact interesting. Science has discovered that each of us have hundreds of bacteria and viruses living within us. 
Did you know that? No matter what uh, antibiotic we take or uh, uh, vaccinations we experience, we have viruses and bacteria within us. When a person's body is weakened by things like emotional difficulties and depression or guilt or bitterness, these opportunistic viruses can then invade our muscles and our organs and uh, bring disease. Some, uh, as some experts believe as many as 90% of all illnesses are caused by these opportunistic viruses that are lurking in our bodies. Now, I can't say dogmatically, but it may be the case uh, that the sin and the guilt that this man was bearing uh, was a cause of his illness. It's certainly a possibility. And Jesus knew what he needed. You see, sometimes we think we know what we need, but we don't. Jesus knows what we need. A man walked into a pet store, said, I want a talking parrot. The clerk said, yes, sir, I have two birds that talk. The large green parrot here is quite a talker. He taps on the cage, and the bird says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the store owner says, this parrot knows the entire Bible by heart. Then he looks over at another cage, this red one here, he's learning. He prompts the parrot, and the parrot says, Polly wants a cracker. And the bird repeats it again, Polly wants a cracker. And so the customer says, well, I'll take this red one. Uh, if you can teach me how to make it talk. He said, sure, I can teach you. And uh, he sits down with the man, spends hours teaching him how to train the parrot, puts the parrot in the cage, the man takes him home. Uh, after a week, the man comes back to the store and says, the bird you sold me doesn't talk. The store owner says, it doesn't. He said, did you follow my instructions? Yes, the man said to the letter. So, well, maybe that bird is lonely. I'll tell you what, take this mirror, put it in the cage. He'll see the mirror, think it's another parrot, he'll start talking. So he said, okay. He went home, he tried it, comes back a week later. He says, that bird is still not talking. I want my money back. He says, I, I know what it is. I bet the bird is bored. He said, he wants a toy. Take this bell, go put it in the cage. The, the parrot can knock against the bell and ring it, and, uh, and he'll be okay. So he said, okay, I will. He comes back later carrying the dead parrot in a shoebox. He said, I want my money back. This parrot has died. He opens the shoebox, sees the poor little dead parrot. He said, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. But tell me, he said, did the bird ever talk? He said, well, the man said it did say one word right before it died. And the store owner said, what did it say? The man said, it said, food. You see, sometimes we think we know what we need most from Jesus, but we really don't. And sometimes, like that poor parrot, we have a hard time expressing what we really need. But Jesus, unlike uh, that unfortunate parrot owner, Jesus knows exactly what we need. You say, Pastor Tim, what do you mean? Well, uh, for example, we may think... Our greatest need at the moment is to be relieved from physical suffering. But maybe Jesus knows that at that moment uh, there are things he wants to teach us through that experience, which constitute a greater need than our being relieved from that suffering. 
or we may think we really need that difficult person out of our lives, but Jesus knows we need that person in our lives to show them Jesus' love. Or we may have some trial in our lives that we want to be free from, but Jesus knows that that trial is needed to build our faith and to cause us to be dependent on him. And so we pray, like Paul prayed to have his thorn in the flesh removed. He prayed three times for that. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, I'm not going to relieve you from that thorn in the flesh, but I'm going to give you grace to bear up under it. Why would God say such a thing? Because he knows best. Our Heavenly Father knows best. And so when we come to Jesus, we may think we know what we need, and we can ask him for what we think we need, but I'm thankful that he knows exactly what we need, and he gives us what we need most. Some of the best answers to prayer I've ever received are when God gave me the exact opposite of what I prayed for. Come on. Because I thought I knew what I needed. I definitely knew what I wanted, but he knew what I needed. You ever have God answer a prayer like that? That's how we learn to trust in him. That's what extreme faith does. It says, Lord, I bring my needs and my burdens, my petitions to you. I tell you what I want, what I think I need. I spoke about that last week. You clarify what you want, clarify what you need. But it's always with the proviso. God, Lord, I give that to you. But Father, you know best. And you're going to give me what I need. Extreme faith says, Lord, I trust you. It doesn't get discouraged. It says, I didn't receive what I wanted. The moment I prayed for it, I offered up a prayer and that was it. No, I've been desperate to pray. I've come to you. And Lord, I'm going to trust you to give me exactly what I need. He's not ignoring you. He's not forgotten you. Sometimes he is giving you exactly what you need. What's the third characteristic of those with extreme faith? It's this, their lives bring glory to God. As he walked home, this man, as I said earlier, was praising God, and the people crammed into that little room started praising God with him. And it says that they were amazed and filled with awe and said that what they had seen was remarkable. Some interesting insights from the original Greek. The Greek word translated amazed is ekstasis, from which we get the English word ecstasy. It means to be thrown into a state of surprise. Elsewhere it is translated astonished. They were astonished. They were surprised by this miracle. The Greek word translated awe here in the NIV means rever reverential fear. An awe of Almighty God came over them. And the Greek word translated remarkable is the word paradoxos from which we get the English word paradox. It literally means contrary to received opinion. So because of the extreme faith of these men and the, the miraculous healing it produced, the onlookers were astonished, they were moved to a state of reverential fear of God, and they were confronted by something they had never seen before, God doing the supernatural. For the rest of his life, this formerly paralyzed man would be a living testament to the power and the goodness of God, especially to those who knew his situation before he was healed. He would be a walking, talking billboard for Jesus. Isn't that awesome? What a story he had to tell. Imagine him sitting around with their, his friends, 
And they're telling stories about this. Oh, I saw this, you know, and I experienced this. I thought that was pretty cool. He says, well, yeah, I can top that. I used to not be able to walk. Then the man Jesus spoke to me, and now I can walk, and I can talk, and I can run, and I can dance. You win, friend. We can't top that story. His life brought glory to God. And you and I can also be examples of what God can do in the life of a person with extreme faith. How many can say this morning that God has done miracles on your behalf? He's done things that it is unmistakable that it was God. That there's no natural, no human explanation for it other than it had to be the hand of God doing the supernatural in your life. You know what? We need to tell those stories. We need to brag on our God. We, we, we need to not forget them and not bury those stories in our past, but we need to declare the goodness of God, church. If we have an extreme faith in him, we need to tell what that faith has produced. I can tell you story after story in my life. When I was an infant, I had a, a, an infection that at the time was in the headlines, killed 66 babies in Texas. And my dad, who was a man of faith, my mom and dad, who were people of faith, they prayed and God healed me of that infection. I can tell you about the time when we were back meeting in the shopping center, we were praying for people around the altar, and my wife was walking uh, around praying for people, and God gave me a word that someone was being healed of a problem in their foot. And I don't often, I don't often get words like that, but I got one that day, and, and nobody seemed to acknowledge it. And then later on at lunch, my wife said, you know what? That word was for me. God healed my foot. She had had a problem with her art. She wore supports. God totally healed her. She was going around praying for other people, didn't even realize it. God did a creative miracle. I've shared with you how when uh, my, my uh, youngest daughter, Stephanie, was an infant strapped in her car seat on a, on, a, on a spring day with a heavy coat on, my wife accidentally locked her keys in the car and, uh, and couldn't get in the car. And people gathered around and sweat was forming on Stephanie's brow. She could see it from the outside. And people were gathered around getting ready to break the windows of the car to get in. And they heard a click and the door locks unlocked. My wife heard, saw and heard that. You see, that's what our God does. Our God does the impossible. Our God does the unexplainable. Our God does the supernatural. And we need to declare the goodness of God. We need to tell uh, our family. Uh, you need to pass those kind of miracles on to your children. And let them know what God has done in your life. I used to hear my, my parents tell stories of what God had done in their lives when they were young Christians. And I started telling their stories. And I said, Lord, I want stories of my own. And God gave me stories of my own. God spared my life when I, I, I drove a little Chevy Vega. Remember those things? Luminum, aluminum engine. I flipped that one going, going over 60 miles an hour on a highway in New York State. I flipped that over on its roof car flipped over and landed again on its wheels. The whole top was dented, dented and crushed in. I walked away with a few scratches because Almighty God is a faithful God. Until my dying day, till my last breath, I'm going to declare the goodness of God. I'm going to declare that God gives me what I need, that God intervenes uh, when there's no other way. He's the way maker. Hallelujah. When there's no human solution, he's the solution. Hallelujah. And God needs to receive glory from your life and from my life. 
Don't ever stop telling those stories. Don't ever stop declaring the goodness of God to anybody and everybody you can tell. Tell how God has been good to you. Tell what he's done for your family. Tell how he saved you. Tell how he's cleaned you up. Tell how he's taken away your habits, how he's healed your body, how he's provided your finances. Tell how he's been good to you. Too many times in this world, Christians are the cause of shame being heaped on the cause of Christ. You know that as well as I do. Instead, let's be the cause of him receiving glory. Has God performed any miracles in your life? Salvation, healing, financial provision, protection, direction? Tell somebody. Declare the goodness of God. Give him the glory. You see, this man, for the rest of his life, people could could uh, try and, and, and say that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, that Jesus never really could forgive sins, that he really wasn't the Son of God, that he really wasn't a miracle worker. But this man could say, oh, I beg to differ, hallelujah. I couldn't walk, I was lame, I was paralyzed. But this man spoke to me and I got up and I started walking and I'll never believe anything different because I know what he did in my life. And I'll give him glory the rest of my life. Hallelujah. Glory to God. My prayer for each of us is that God would receive glory from our lives. Conclusion this morning. From studying the brain, scientists have found that repeated thoughts actually create physical grooves in the brain. When we practice a skill, learn a sport, or study facts, a little trench is carved into our brain tissue. This is uh, one reason why it's hard to break a habit. A habit is truly physical in that sense. One must make a new brain groove to break a habit. And not only do repeated thoughts become brain grooves, but deeds and repeated deeds become concrete routines in our lives. In the best case scenario, this natural functioning condition of the brain helps us to learn. So Pastor Tim, what's your point? My point is this, we can train ourselves to have a faith response be our first response. We can train ourselves. We can say, Lord, what you did for me back then is an indication of what you're able to do for me now. And so, Lord, when this trial has come my way, when this problem that's too big for me, uh, that would cause me to tend to want to fear and, and be in despair, uh, Lord, instead, I'm going to rely on your faithfulness because you've proven yourself, and my first response is going to be a faith response. Like David, when he faced Goliath, he knew that God had helped him to defeat the lion and the bear. His first response was a faith response. Let's, let's, let's develop that habit. Let's let our brains uh, make that groove, okay? That, that, let's, let's, let's entrench that routine, that thought pattern into our minds. If we seek to do that, extreme faith can become second nature to us. And that's what God's looking for. Amen. Were the characteristics of people with extreme faith in God, they're desperate to receive something from Jesus. Nothing else is as important. Nothing else matters. But they are desperate to receive from him. Are we desperate today? Is our need to get to Jesus just a preference? Or is it a desperation? They're desperate to receive from Jesus. They receive what they need most from Jesus. Do we trust him enough that he will give us what we need? Even if it's something different than what we want? 
because he knows what we need. Thirdly, uh, those with extreme faith uh, have lives that bring glory to God. Has God been good to you? Has God done a miracle in your life? Tell somebody. Don't ever stop. Pastor Tim, that happened 20 years ago. That's okay. It's still real. You're still living it out. Pastor Tim, that was a long time ago. doesn't matter. Pastor Tim, what if they don't believe me? That's okay, too. That's okay. You know it's true, and you're declaring the goodness of God. 